I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket at dr-gen.com. Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg is a mother of three and a 20-plus year pediatrician, board certified, who has called all of her amazing advice and made a series of five-minute videos on everything from feeding and sleeping to safety and all types of parenting issues, which basically every parent out there can use, especially in the middle of the night when you can't reach your pediatrician. So this is like a must do. And she's offering a discount to everyone with code PIP20. PIP20 20 is the code to get 20% off of all of her modules. So definitely go to dr-gen.com and check it out. It's also on a link in my website too, zibbyowens.com. I'm excited to be interviewing Melissa T. Schultz today, who's a writer and the acquisitions editor for Jim Donovan Literary, an agency that represents book authors. She's written about health and parenting for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsweek Reader's Digest, AARP's The Girlfriend, Today.com, and many other publications. Her memoir, Self-Help Book, From Mom to Me Again, How I Survived My First Empty Nest Year and Reinvented the Rest of My Life, was published by Sourcebook in 2016, and named one of the three inspiring reads by Parade.com. Melissa recently co-founded Card Sisters, a new line of greeting cards for women. The tagline is, women friends are sisters at heart. So welcome, Melissa. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Can you please tell listeners what From Mom to Me Again is about and what inspired you to write this amazing book? Of course. The book is written for moms with kids in junior high and up. And it's really about the process of letting go and learning to move forward. There's lots of storytelling from me and other moms. There's interviews with professionals like therapists, researchers, and job counselors. And it's, it's part memoir and part self-help. I talk a lot in the book about the ups and downs that are part of the journey and the areas of life that the journey touches on, like friendships, marriage, careers. And I wrote it because although I found lots of books that talked about life after the kids leave, I, I couldn't find any to help prepare me before they left. So I turned, you know, to books as a resource. And I had done that throughout my kids' life. So I could make better choices, more informed choices to, to understand their needs, you know, beyond what may come naturally to me. But the big thing was this, as long as I'd been a parent, even with my work, even as a daughter, as a sister, as a wife, I, I considered myself a mom first and foremost. But with my kids moving out and up, I needed to rethink that whole view. And I created this blog, a weekly blog, to explore it all called the Preempt Chronicles. I pitched it to the Huffington Post, and luckily they said yes. And I wrote the blog for about a year before my youngest left for school. And then the book evolved from there. And as it turned out, it really was the beginning of a new chapter for me. Writing the blog and eventually the book, it kind of allowed me to step back from all the emotion of the change and the transition and kind of tap into my inner Spock. And I was able to explore lots of, of the parts of life that the transition impacts and then share what I was learning with other moms, kind of to keep them ahead of the curve and hopefully to validate their feelings as well. You know, you said that this book is for, you know, junior high and up, but I disagree. I think this is for any age parent or because this is really about how to savor the time you have and 
and strategies for doing that. And it's also just about the things that happened in your life as happened in various ways in other people's lives along the way and how you bounce back from that. So I think you're selling yourself a little short by by only <laughs> by limiting the mom audience, but that's just my two cents. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, there there are a lot of essays, as you read, that talk about when they're younger and, you know, from really from the time that we meet them, so to speak, right through when they're off and out to school or wherever they're going to. So yes, in that sense, I would totally agree. (laughs) You have a really great moment when your sons had both left for college and you wrote, though my heart was full after all, they were both on their way to achieving their dreams. It was also broken. I'd been demoted from the best, most fulfilling, most challenging round the clock job I'd ever had to a lesser still undefined role in my children's lives. It's not as if I didn't know it was coming. I just never imagined I could feel this wonderful and horrible at the same time. Tell me a little more about that moment. Yeah, it's it's actually hard for me to even hear that again. Well, time was different for me. You know, children have a a way of having these schedules in this life. And, you know, three o'clock meant something to me that it didn't mean to me in my 20s. Five o'clock meant something to me that it didn't mean to me in my 20s. And when they left, I couldn't get over how differently time work. So initially it was just this giant rush, like, you know, you eat a piece of chocolate and it's just fantastic. And you say, isn't this great? And then all at once at the same time, it was this sort of, oh, snap, I'm, I'm not going to be part of the, you know, the small, sweet, magical moments that kind of add up and were ours as a family. And it was those little moments that that taught me about love in a way I'd never known before. So it it felt sad, but I got through it in a couple of ways. And writing certainly was one of them. I was able to sort things out by writing and by speaking to other moms about the book, just hearing there were a lot of universal themes that came up and just hearing those, you know, it was thoroughly human and it was very healing. And then knowing that I might be able to share some of my experiences, again, ahead of the curve for them, it was a kind of my pay it forward and it helped me get through it. I also tried setting goals for new, for trying new things. We do get sort of set in a routine and our lives are focused around our children, but I thought, okay, this is my chance to to try some some things I'd said I always wanted to try. And I did some research about it and It turns out if we challenge ourselves and we acquire new skills, our brains really do rewire themselves and rebuild themselves. So I took that to heart. And I also realized more than ever, I've always been a very physical person. I like to get up and move and go for walks and and exercise. But I realized that if I dwelled too much on what I might be missing, then I'm not moving forward and and it it can make you stuck. So I wanted to unstick myself. So whether it was work-related, whether it had to do with friendships, whether it had to do with my marriage, whether it had to do with my house, I knew I needed to make plans and change things. And some things were easier than others. You know, that kitchen drawer everybody has that's just filled with just weird things that you go, I don't know where to put that. So it's going in that drawer and I'm just going to close that drawer. I tackled that. That was like my first big goal because that was actually a little thing, but it it meant a lot to me. And it kind of made me laugh because some really weird stuff came out of that drawer. (laughs) Um, I eventually moved my, you know, way up and got to sorting through my, my children's rooms and making them more adult. And 
that was fun because I texted my kids all along the way. They were away and said, okay, do you want this? And do you want this? And and we had fun with that. And I found a lot of macaroni necklaces and pictures they'd drawn of my husband and me. And, you know, it brought back some really nice memories, I think, for all of us. We also made plans to move, my husband and I, or I did, after our youngest graduated. And we still have not <laughs> moved because, as it turned out, that was more my goal than my husband's goal. And we are just now starting that process because I think you... I think with couples, they, from all the people that I've spoken to, um, and myself included, you go through this transition in a different way. Everybody processes it differently. And I know my husband processed it differently than I did. Um, so he wasn't ready to, to move from that environment where all these memories, you know, lived. Um, and I thought we should absolutely move. We need to start fresh, you know, so we have new memories. And there's something in between there for everybody. <laughs> I'm going to just jump around a little because you had this one piece of advice in the book. And as speaking as a mom whose kids, well, I have a child in boarding school, but my kids are all home and I'm not at that stage yet. So I'm trying to take your advice and like sort of live it in the moment. So one thing you said is, quote, stop spending so much time worrying because virtually none of the things I focused on actually occurred. And as it turns out, there's a fine line between being cautious and being a worry ward. And so obviously I know this intellectually, like it's not good to waste time worrying, but I feel like it's the nature of the beast in a way that you're constantly like worrying about your kids and what ifs and whatever else. Can you really actually like get, get I'm not saying I'm like pathologically worrying, but how do you actually put that into practice? Do you think like if you had to go back in time and talk to yourself about it? Well, I do think some of us are primed to worry more than others. Sometimes it's because bad things have actually happened. Sometimes it's just our makeup. And sometimes, as in my case, I think I didn't feel protected as a kid. And I never wanted my kids to feel that way. And I've discovered that worry sometimes comes not just from the desire to protect our kids, because I think every parent has that in spades. But I think the need to feel a sense of control is what mm -hmm. it's all about. And if we can control, we can prevent. But, you know, as my kids love to text me, ha, 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 you know, like <laughs> that was, it, you know, life definitely plays by its own rules. So my best advice is just do what you need to do to feel prepared. Because when I would prepare for things, it was, it felt like, the concept of insurance. You know, you you buy insurance, you do your research, you buy insurance, and then you need to just go live your life. And so I told myself that if I could just plan enough so that, you know, I take care of the what ifs that I can control and realize there's a whole bunch of them that I can't, that the insurance isn't going to cover, then I just need to, to go ahead and live my life. And I had to remind myself that I'm resourceful. I mean, I'm a mom. Moms, moms develop these crazy, mad skills. We're resourceful. And I will be capable of figuring things out if they happen in a word. So I'd also recruit a couple of women friends or women relatives in particular that are your, your posse who will be there for you through thick and thin. And then when things happen, you know, you've got some people to turn to and that's the rest of your insurance policy. I mean, you definitely had a lot of things happen, which you talk about in the book. Not just that your kids were leaving for school, but your son Nick went through this 
horrific year-long illness where the whole medical community essentially failed you. And you said you had to sort of stay after that experience on low-level alert as, a, as a, like a night watchman of sorts. Can you tell me, tell us a little about that experience with your son? And then like, do you think that made it even harder for him to leave? Or did you, I don't know, talk, talk to me a little bit about that because it was so moving in the book reading about what happened. I guess I've I've always likened the role of a mom to a watchman or a watch person, especially at night. I mean, when you think about it, it's when so many things happen. They're not always bad things, but it's often the stuff that keeps us up at night and the kids up at night, too. Fevers, dreams, worries, anticipation. And as my sons got older, you know, I realized that most of our best conversations came out of those nights. You know, I kind of left the light on in my office. I chose to write at night like I was a Motel 6. I (laughs) I left the light on. And they would kind of slowly kind of creep in with a blanket wrapped around them and lay down on the on the floor and curl up with the dog. And and often they didn't say anything at first. And I knew something was coming. But if I could just, you know, be there, I think it gave them permission to talk. And when Nick was sick, I kind of went into this full investigative mode. I I learned and was disappointed to learn that at the time our health system, you know, wasn't set up to unravel health mysteries kind of at more than a snail's pace. You know, you go from doctor to doctor and it can take months to get appointments. They don't talk to each other in real time. When you talk to them, they have seven minutes to give you and they love to hand out medications. So I think I got at least one year of my medical degree. And in that year, (laughs) many of the doctors sent us home and would say, you know, yeah, Nick's not well enough to go to school. Come back and see us in a month. And, you know, months would pass. And I found that doctors in the same community wouldn't want to disagree with a previous doctor. So we were kind of just going in circles. But we did get really lucky in one regard. The school system sent a teacher to him to work with him when he was not well. And her that was her job. She worked with families and with children who were sick and, and too sick to go to school. So, and she came over like twice a week. He'd lay on the couch because he was just so dizzy all the time. And she, you know, gave him what he needed to do to keep learning and to give him hope. And, you know, she was also there for us, you know, after he went back to school part-time and then eventually full-time and really gave us advice right up to the time he went off to college. And she was the one who encouraged me to research getting him into the, the Mayo Clinic. And they really turned his life around because their style of medicine was so very different. They spoke in real time. They didn't let you leave until they had all the answers. And, you know, they, they made Nick better. And he made that made us better, I think. I ended up writing an article for Newsweek. They had a section at the time that was about medical odysseys. And that piece, I got so much mail from and so many stories from desperate parents. And there was one girl in particular, she had symptoms that were so similar to Nick's. We kept in touch for years after that. Wow. You also had breast cancer, which you talk about in the book. And this part has been literally like on repeat in my brain ever since I read this passage from your book. You said, I do wonder if the stress of my particular personality, being the pleaser, the responsible one, uber tuned into everyone's feelings, didn't contribute somehow to my breast cancer having the opportunity to grow. Okay, talk to me about this. Like, <laughs> is it the stress? Is it the people pleasing? Do you actually think that the, is it the stress causing the inflammation? Like, 
tell me about this and how, if you have this personality type, can you avoid having this personality type? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're kind of stuck with it, I think. Um, (laughs) And it's not a bad thing, I think, because it also, you know, your antenna's out. So I think, you know, you're much more tuned in to you, your children, you know, your your whole family and your friends. I mean, you're you're going to be that person that people go to and you'll identify things. Just for the record, I, I wrote, and I wrote an article about this, about what not to say to someone with cancer. I don't think anyone should ever tell somebody or imply to someone who has cancer that they gave it to themselves. It's, it's blaming the victim and it's very hurtful and it's not, it's not true. That said, looking back, you know, as you often do when you have a diagnosis and you have time on your hands that you didn't expect to have, I do think if we wear ourselves down and moms tend to be the great multitaskers, right? We, we often don't get enough sleep. We take on more and more. You know, we basically don't take time for what lots of people call self-care. Well, I mean, something's got to give and our immune systems often pay the price. So when they pay the price, I think it does provide that opportunity for things to happen. And in the case of my breast cancer, I was told when I was diagnosed, oh, this, this has probably been growing for eight years, it takes. So it's sort of quietly doing its thing. And that was a lot of time that I, I wish I you know, could take back and perhaps learn to find ways to quiet myself and have time just for myself and find that balance. I always found that difficult to be the mom I wanted to be and not be available all the time. But I did at some point realize that I'm a better mom if I can take some time for myself. And I don't mean disappearing for huge chunks of time from my kid's life, but just find, finding those moments. Sometimes 20 minutes is, is all you need, but I didn't do enough of that. I'd recommend that every mom take an honest look at their life, you know, right now and the way you live. Is, is there room for improvement in terms of finding that time? You know, can you draw more boundaries between work and home? If you work at home, can you keep that door closed for a little bit longer? Anyway, also eating chocolate. That's, <laughs> that, does, that does wonders for me. That, that's like my main coping strategy, basically. <laughs> I'm like, wait, you're supposed to have a boundary between work and home? What? No. <laughs> and I grew up that way. So my, my father was a very dynamic man and we, he was always, you know, working and he worked a lot from home and there were no boundaries. So to me, that was normal. But then I kind of met other people who had the opposite life. And I thought, oh, you mean this is how other people, this is how other people live. Your father doesn't work at 11 o'clock at night. And in those days, he had a separate phone line that was literally a red phone. It was like the red phone was ringing and somebody really important must be calling. And, you know, he did an all night radio talk show. And so like our house was just, it was 24 seven. So I think there's a way to find balance that he would have appreciated, I think today. I don't know. When you find balance, you let me know. (laughs) But I just want to read one last quote. And I know I keep quoting, but some books you just have to quote from a lot. Your relationship with your dad, which you were just touching on, you wrote about it. You said, sometimes after we grow up, we figure out that the people who were charged with taking care of us were not necessarily ready for the role, which I think says a lot about parenting. Some people aren't ready. Some people aren't maybe, well, anyway, let me let you talk about it, not me. Oh, 
Yeah, when I was an adult, and this is the way it often works, right? We we get to know our parents better. And a lot of the time, he, he died when I was younger. And I wish I had figured out more about his life when I was younger to kind of give it more perspective. But as an adult, I learned to understand some of the reasons that maybe he parented the way he did. His parents were not very involved. They weren't very loving, at least not in the way our generation, I think, has come to known. And the effect of that can often make us want to parent differently. He had emotional issues, I think, that were genetic as well as, you know, his upbringing. And those issues were enabled by the people around him, people who I think could have made a difference in his life and ultimately mine. But again, times were different. People didn't talk as much about feelings. And I think he suffered. And as a result, I suffered. He could be wildly funny. He was brilliant in many ways. He was charming. And it, it was confusing. Our, our house was chaotic. There were no routines. We had constant company. I actually wanted someone to say, you know, I know how much kids hate this, but like, where are you going? And, you know, to pay attention to the answer. But he was, you know, very self-focused and our lives revolved around him and his moods. And I, I did. I thought all dads were like that. When I became a parent, I ended up parenting just really differently. And I learned during interviews from my book that that was called, that actually had a name. It was called revisionist parenting. <laughs> and I, I wanted to parent differently. I wanted my kids to feel protected, to feel valued, and most importantly, to feel wanted. And I think everybody deserves that. He deserved that. And I wish as a family it had been addressed because with the right diagnosis and treatment, I, I believe our lives would have been very different growing up. Wow. Well, but is that like hindsight's twenty twenty? you know? Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's hard. Finding forgiveness, I think, for something in your parents' parenting can often take a lifetime, <laughs> right? I mean, it, it can. And, and I think you that lifetime is because you you go through the, your own stages with your children and, and how many times I'm sure you've had this experience where, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're in a scene with them and you think, wow, oh, I just, I just understood something about my mother or my father or my grandparents that, you know, I didn't get forever because I, I was having an emotion, you know, similar to something that I remember, you know, one of them having a frustration or a joy and I, you know, they could have explained it to me 50 different ways and I wouldn't have gotten it until I lived a version of it and interpreted it myself. So, wow. So tell me now more about your new venture, which is very exciting, the Card Sisters, which by the way, when I went online, cause I was researching you and trying to see what your new company was and all that. And so I ordered a card and then you were so nice. You sent me like a whole bunch of cards and a mug, which I'm using like every day to heat up my kids' milk and everything. Uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, that was super sweet of you. But tell me about this new venture of yours and what brought this on. Well, I've been taking photographs for most of my life and I it's just been a long time dream of mine to create greeting cards. And when my kids were little, I had an opportunity to do it, but at that point, I had a big job and, and my children and I was commuting long distance and I thought, oh my God, I can't, I can't do all this unless I stay up 24 hours. So I'll do it soon. And, you know, the years passed and the years passed and here I am and I thought, this is soon. It's, it's, now, or it's now or never. So I asked a friend of mine who was also going through a transition with her kids heading, heading out if she would do this with me if she'd partner with me. Her name is Lisa Miller, and I'm so glad she said yes. So we're 
you know, we're a women, woman-owned business and we're using a woman-owned printer in Austin, Texas. Our tagline is women friends are sisters at heart. And it's been three years in the making. We've literally taught ourselves each step along the way. We've had, you know, we've had steps forward and steps back, but it's just been a wonderful growth experience. So we've just launched online and we're hoping to go into stores soon. And actually we have an offer for your listeners. If they go to our site, they can get 20% off if they say card sisters at heart 20, if they type that in. Wow. Um, Thank you. And it'll say Zuby's listeners, but look for card sisters at heart 20 and you can shop in your jammies and they'll come to your door the way they came to your door. So they use their, they do incorporate photographs. So they're my photographs. They're the photographs that other women have taken. They're the photographs of my co-founder, Lisa. And um, some of them are archival. They all have stories in themselves. Each photograph represents a story too. So Wow. Well, that was We're an unexpected good. little bonus. Thanks, Melissa. That was awesome. Know, thank you. <laughs> so just in closing, so what else is coming up for you? Like what... Are you going to write another book like grandma again, maybe when your kids get older? Like, do you want to keep doing writing? Do you want to keep pursuing photography? Like, tell me what's what's next on the horizon aside from running a new business, which could be all, which would be fine. (laughs) Well, yes, is my answer to all of that. Like, I just again, I feel like I'm at this point in my life where there's so many things that I want to do and I, I, I want to take the time to do them all right and enjoy them. I think I'm always going to write stories about life and their pursuit of happiness, a lot of essays, but I, I just hope there's publications left to publish them. And I'm working on a couple of children's books, not to sound cliche, but I told my kids so many stories when we were, when they were growing up and I was, I always meant to write them down. So write those stories down moms, because you know, people like to hear them. One of them is called, what'll I do if I miss you? And it's about a boy who is worried about starting preschool and his mom has an idea that will bring him comfort. And that boy is one of my sons and it's a true story. So that's my next goal. I've got a couple pieces coming out. I've got one coming up in ARP next month about remembering the girl in all of us because that that memory will keep you young mm-hmm. and you always want to remind yourself of that time in your life. I think when you're stuck I've found one of the things that's helped me a lot is to try to engage with that girl that I was. So it it gives me energy and it makes me feel like there's lots of opportunities for the future and lots of things ahead. Wow. Any advice? I also... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. You go, you go. I was going to say, I think probably what you're going to ask about advice for, you know, empty nesters and moving forward. Is that where you were headed? Sure. Let's do it again. So, Melissa, do you have any advice for (laughs) empty nesters and people going forward and for any aspiring authors out there? I do. My advice for aspiring authors for nonfiction is write the book that you can't find. You know, the book that if you were on a dating app, you know, it would show you're just perfect for that person. You know, that's your book. As for newish or empty nesters, start early. The earlier you start thinking about things, I think the easier it is. And it's not that it's it's going to be, you know, oh, goodbye, see ya, <laughs> everything will be fine. But it does make it easier when you prepare and when you think ahead about 
all the parts of your life, you know, your career, friendships, your marriage, those are important things to talk about and think about and make sure you're talking to your partner. Let yourself go through the process of feeling all the feels, I call it. It's totally natural. Don't berate yourself for it. And then you got to give yourself permission. And I talk to women all the time about this. Permission is a key word here. Give yourself permission to take center stage in your own life, you know, again, or maybe for the first time. And there was a hair commercial that L'Oreal did in the 70s, and it always stuck with me. They had this tagline, because I'm worth it. And it it stuck with me even before I understood what it meant. Because you're Um, worth it, isn't it? Because because you're worth it. It's, It's because I'm worth it. She actually says because I'm worth it. But it, I think eventually it morphed to become because I'm worth it. Uh. But that is the thing. You are worth it. And I don't think, I think moms often feel as if the focus is 100% on the children. And that's different for everybody. But I think in order for you to be the best mom to them, you do have to remind yourself that you're worth it and take the time to figure out what makes you happy because when you're happy, they're happy. I'm feeling like you have a partnership in the works now with L'Oreal. I mean, what do you think? <laughs> I know. I've got these little grays pouting, sprouting through. So yeah, I may have a partnership in a different way. Very soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and for this beautiful book that you wrote that was really, really helpful for me. So thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books was sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket by Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg, dr-gen.com. Enter code PIP20, PIP20, for 20% off of these can't-miss modules that will make your parenting life so much easier. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 